Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Vegas Therapist. I am your host, Ryan Winder. And remember, what's happening in Vegas is not staying in Vegas, as I bring you helpful tips and all sorts of topic areas, with a Vegas twist of course. So let's get the show started. Welcome, welcome everybody. It's good to have you back in for another episode of The Vegas Therapist. I'm your host, Ryan Winder. And I've got a great episode for you. Not only is it the 100th episode of the Vegas Therapist Podcast, but I am bringing you an amazing guest, Mary Catherine McDonald, who is a PhD. She goes by MC. She wrote the book Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong. She's going to be joining us. And I just got to tell you, it is an amazing episode because I've already recorded it. And just the things that we talked about is basically like a trauma 101 uh, uh, session as far as just understanding trauma, how to work through it, different aspects of things that we can do to heal. Um, just great all around episode. And she's an amazing guest, amazing person, and just talks so elegantly about trauma and the aspects that go along with it. So I know you're just going to really enjoy it. But before we get to her really quick, just want to do some housekeeping items. Uh, please, if this is your first time listening or if you've been listening for a while but haven't rated or reviewed the show on Apple, please do so. It just helps out with the ratings, helps get the, the word out there, boost the, the, the ratings on Apple so it maybe gets shown more. Uh, that would be a great thing. And then if you're interested in following me on, on Instagram, you can do that with The Vegas Therapist on Instagram as well as my Facebook page. Um, the Vegas Therapist Podcast on Facebook, which I will post stuff on there and you're welcome to post stuff. And then finally, if you have anything specific for me that you'd like to reach out to me, maybe do some coaching, therapy, whatever it may be, um, you can reach out to me, ryanwinder at gmail.com or message me on Instagram, whichever is easiest for you to do. And I'd be happy to do any work with anybody that is looking to just improve in their life. Uh, and get better. So those are kind of the housekeeping things. But like I said, we have a great episode. I don't want to waste any more time, but let's get to the show. All right. Well, this time I'd like to welcome in my guest, the author of her new book, Unbroken, and it is Mary, or I guess Mary Catherine McDonald. Um, short, she goes by MC, which is a nice little short version. So, but welcome in. I'm really glad that you're here. And um, I think I said before we got started, I love the book and I've already recommended it to a lot of people, but it's, it's great. So thank you for taking the time to come on. Oh my gosh. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So just so we can maximize our time, what something I usually like to do is just a few, because if people aren't familiar with you or haven't heard about the book yet, you can kind of just give us a little bit of background about yourself and kind of what you know, what got you into the field and kind of where you're at now with things and just kind of going from there. If you, if you want to just start there. For sure. It's kind of a long windy road. So um, okay. buckle up. <laughs> yeah. All um, right. I started out uh, researching, I started out in academia and I still have an academic mm-hmm. position. Um, I started studying um, interdisciplinary approaches to, to really dark things. I got the nickname Dr. Sunshine of in the first place that I worked because First, I was studying mourning 
and grief. And then I was studying child death and I was studying suicide. Then oh. I was looking at, at PTSD and combat veterans. And so they were like, okay, Dr. Sunshine, what are you going to look at next? You know? right. <laughs> That's quite the history there. Yeah. That's... Right. Right. Um, so I've always kind Hopefully of been... you had some fun things to do at the end of the day, like to get out of that a little bit or no. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. Okay. I mean, I think right. like, as okay. you can see, like I'm, I think that was also part of the nickname is I'm, I'm, I'm not who you might expect to be in the darkness right. all the time. You know what I mean? Cause I'm pretty yeah. smiley and yeah, joke. Yeah. Yeah. Happy. And yeah. A little, yeah. A little muppety maybe. <laughs> so, <Right>. um, <laughs> so I started by studying grief um, and I was looking at uh, philosophy and psychoanalysis um, and sort of the history of the study of grieving. And then I moved into my PhD program and started studying trauma and identity. Um, and then, you know, continued down that academic path. I was writing research papers. I wrote two academic books on trauma and the research that I was doing. And I was pulling together um, uh, three different fields. So I was looking at philosophy, um, neuroscience and psychoanalysis. And many folks mm -hmm. don't know that in the field of philosophy, there's a whole subsection called the philosophy of psychology. And so the specialization that I had in my PhD program was looking at the field of psychology from a critical disposition. So what what is going on in the field? What is going right? What is going wrong? How can we reframe things? Um, and I felt that pulling together things in an interdisciplinary way was the best way to get sort of a holistic understanding of anything that we were looking mm -hmm. at in mental health. And so um, I have looked at other things, but I really got inspired when I started researching trauma because there was so much confusion in the field of psychology about what trauma even was, which I was super shocked mm -hmm. by. You know, like you think, yeah, okay, I'm yeah. going to go get this scientific understanding from this field that has been studying this since the 1800s. Surely they understand what it is. And I found out really quickly that, that it was still really up for debate. And so right. while I was in grad school, I started a coaching practice because um, number one, I didn't think that I would be able to land an academic job because I was in such a strange interdisciplinary niche. So I had a lot of things working against me in a job market field that is really, really small already. And so I wanted to do some sort of clinical work, but I felt really conflicted about going into clinical work from this critical disposition. So I was like in my research kind of tearing apart the field of psychology and it felt really inauthentic to then just go into it. And so I started a yeah. coaching practice, you know, instead as a way of seeing clients and, and kind of getting information out there and continuing to do my research. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, I realized, okay, I have this academic experience. I have this research experience. Everything that I'm learning is pointing to a couple of central themes about the way mm -hmm. that we understand and talk about trauma and triggers and healing. And I have all this, you know, all this experience with clients, all this academic stuff. Why don't I put together a book that will actually reach a wider audience? And so that is where Unbroken came from. Oh, okay. Great. Great. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And it's like, it's great. And it definitely can see the the depth and like kind of the way that you bring that writing into play. So one of the things that you mentioned, like the whole definition of trauma and kind of like the convolution there and, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of moved through its different stages. So where did you land with that as far as like how you came to define, define trauma? So I reached for a lot of the, the definitions that I was drawn to were using metaphor because I think mm -hmm. when we when we reach to try to define something that is as you know multi-layered and complex as traumatic experience words sort of fail us we my mom had a friend who used to say sometimes we fall off the edge of language like the words just do not match what we are experiencing 
And so I found William James described trauma as a thorn in the spirit, which was actually the, the, t- the first title of the book. It was supposed to be called a thorn oh. in his, thorns in your spirit. Oh. And, um, but then the publisher rightfully was like, nobody is going to buy that. Like, what? <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> um, and so there's like, a, well, if you get into it, you'll know what it means, right, exactly. but you just got to give it time. Right. You know? <laughs> right. I was like, that's, that's the trick, right? You just give the book a yeah. title that doesn't make any sense. And then everyone will want to read it. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a clinician, Robert Solero, who works in LA, who's a, who's also an interdisciplinary scholar. He uses philosophy and psychology to look at trauma and all sorts of different experience. And he had defined traumatic experience as anything that meets the following two criteria. It has an unbearable emotional affect or experience that lacks a relational home. So number one, you have these unbearable emotions that you can't really process in the way that you process most of the rest of your life. And then two, you don't have a place where you can help get help bearing those unbearable emotions. And so the experience in a way gets stuck. And I just Mm -hmm. found that definition so perfect because I think it does so much work. One of the things I love about it is that unbearable is a bar that's pretty high. Like I can say lots Mm -hmm. of things about my experience. I got stuck in traffic earlier. It was really frustrating. I ended up being late to something that's kind of annoying. It was hot out. I don't like that. It was unpleasant. There's lots of words I can pick, but I can't really say without a sufficient backstory that that's unbearable. Right. Right. Like, and I think- That's important because one of the things that is in this kind of discussion and confusion about how we define trauma is this nervousness that if we open it too far and anything is potentially traumatic, then the word essentially becomes meaningless. And I think that's a a real concern. Yeah. The one thing I was thinking though, too, with that, with the unbearable, and I don't know how you feel about this is like, to me, it, it does also have some context to it as far as person like a personal thing like what's personally unbearable to you yes. like where does that fit in because it's like to me you know somebody might consider something unbearable another person might be like oh that's just a, that's just a friday or something you know what i mean like they don't yeah. necessarily may see it in the same way but where does that fit do you think as far as that goes is that acceptable do you see that as okay or is that yeah, no. too convoluted still or is that No, I think if we're going to expect an amount of precision from this that is not going to be offered by the experience, then we need to go with something that's a little bit more open. And I think that, um, and I think that that does a lot of work. And I also think that, so there's been a lot of damage that has occurred in the history of the study of trauma when we don't allow for that ambiguity, where I say, oh, this is my experience. This was really unbearable. And you say, well, that was a Friday then typically Mm -hmm. in the history of the study of trauma, we look at me and say, well, you have weakness of will. There's something, there's some underlying condition. There's something wrong with you that you're too sensitive. And what's much more common or what's what's much more true is that what is unbearable to me right now is going to be different than what's unbearable to you for chemical reasons, for neurobiology, for life experience, for levels of exhaustion, for stress. And also that's true in an individual basis. So what is unbearable Mm -hmm. to me right now might not be the same as what was unbearable to me before the pandemic. Yeah. Right. Right. So it kind of needs to be a moving target, I think. Right. And I think that that's, and I didn't mention this earlier when we're kind of talking about some of the things to share, but I did have this down as like, you know, kind of like looking at how shame kind of finds its way into trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a big point for it or where it can find a space is that 
because I know when clients come in for me and they might use the word trauma and then they'll start to minimize like, mm -hmm. well, maybe I didn't have it that bad or whatever. And it's like, just kind of pause, hold on. Mm -hmm. Like, don't be so quick to judge your, your experience was your experience, you know, and, yeah. and let's just kind of see where it goes. But I think shame gets in there and it's like, you know, if, if somebody heard that definition, you know, an unbearable emotional experience, they might judge themselves as like, well, mm -hmm. was it unbearable? Was it not? Mm -hmm. And then if shame's there, you know, shame's kind of in there punching at them, like, eh, yeah, you're just, you know, you're a wussy or what, you know, whatever it might be. Right. But I don't know if you want to speak, because I know you talk a little bit about that in the book, just as far as like how shame finds its way into trauma and kind of keeping us maybe from, you know, dealing with our trauma because we feel that way, right? Like maybe it wasn't Absolutely. really that unbearable or something of that nature, right? Is that kind of completely? And it's I think it's corrosive in so many ways. I'm sure you've seen this with couples as well, where where one person in a couple will have a you know a legitimate trauma that's obviously kind of taking itself out on the ner their nervous system, and they will minimize it to their detriment. Or the other partner will say, I have this capital T trauma, you have the lowercase t trauma. So therefore mine is the one that calls the shots. And it's just, that is not going to work. Right. 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 <laughs> and I think when we try to heal from, from trauma, and if we have shame in the mix, that's like trying to hike a mountain with your car strapped to your ankle, you're not going to get very far and you're going to work really hard and not get very far. So I think that, that the other thing that unbearability does, and this requires a little bit of work on, on our part, but I think that that's okay, is that it opens the space of temporality because what was unbearable doesn't necessarily reveal itself in the moment. So to give a simple example, if I picked up a two pound weight and I'm deciding I'm going to hold this over my head for this entire conversation, it's a two pound weight in itself is not that heavy. And I can probably hold it up. Maybe I, maybe I actually could hold it up for the whole time that we talk, but it's going to feel a lot heavier the longer that I hold it. Not because the weight mm -hmm. has gotten heavier, but because of the context, because of the yeah. length of time. And so I think sometimes we bear things and we look back because we have the incorrect frame on healing, I think in general, ma mainly that like there is such a thing as a point of healing where you are done. And so we look yeah. back and we say, well, I, I survived that thing, mm -hmm. right? It must've been bearable because I'm here. And the truth is you're still carrying pieces of it. You have remnants that are, you know, weighing heavy on your shoulders. And again, to add shame to that equation is to make things kind of infinitely harder. So I think sometimes it's helpful to take an external perspective on our experience because, you know, if a little kid came to you and said, my favorite toy just got broken by this bully, it's unbearable. Your first response would not be, oh no, it isn't. You have no idea. Mm. I had got fired at work today. That's unbearable, right? Like that's just not how we relate to each other. And so that isn't, that shouldn't be how we relate to ourselves. I don't know if that makes right. sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think it makes sense. It's, you know, yeah. But I think that's the part of like, you know, like, like you said, the, like, it shouldn't be how we relate to ourselves, but yet we tend to be harder in that way or, or, yeah. you know, not give ourselves the same grace or mm -hmm. allowance for things that we do with other people. And that's pretty, a pretty common challenge that you face in therapy with people. You mentioned okay. the notion of healing and not, I don't know if this is like jumping forward a little bit, mm -hmm. but just because you talked about it in terms of like the way that we view healing. Um, I think this kind of gets mentioned in the book too, just as far as like the idea of like what healing looks like. I think even just the notion of like emotions and, and people kind of might look at healing as like, well, when I don't have any emotion about mm -hmm. the the event anymore, I think you've said that, right? Where it's like, 
you know, then I must be okay. So mm-hmm. I, if you want to just touch on that a little bit, just because we spoke on, you mentioned healing and as, as far as like our, maybe a distortion with that, if that's the right word. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that to do that, we need to talk really quickly about our memory okay. files and how our brain okay. kind of categorizes yeah. our experience. And so sure, really briefly, we can go into more detail if you want, but really briefly, our memories get stored in an area of the brain, primarily in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. And each memory mm-hmm. file has three things in it. It has narrative content, beginning, middle, and end. What happened? Is that coherent? Does it make sense? Emotional content. Was that a funny memory? Is it a joyful memory? Is it bittersweet? Is it sad? Does it bring on anxiety? Whatever the emotional content is. And then it has a set of meaning tags, which help us kind of contextualize it within our larger story arc, right? So your wedding day is going to have a different meaning and importance than that time that you dropped the lunch tray in fourth grade. And each of those memory files is going to have a story, a piece of emotional content, and then the set of meaning tags. And our memory files are supposed to have emotional content. And we don't push mm-hmm. on that or question it when it's joy. Like if I tell you a funny thing that happened at work 20 years ago and I start mm-hmm. laughing, I, I don't think, oh, there's something wrong with me because I'm still laughing at that thing that happened 20 years ago, right? Like we just take that. Yeah, as, it's fine. It, our, it was a funny time, right? Right, exactly. It's a funny yeah. story. Whenever I tell it, I get the benefit of, of having that little bolt of, of laughter um, and joy. Our traumatic memories, our upsetting memories, our grief memories also have emotional content because they are supposed to. So the goal of healing trauma is not forgetting and it's not, you know, not feeling. The goal of healing from trauma is integration. So what you're trying to do is get your memory files to look like most of the rest of your memory files so that your brain can find those files, when they need them, you can talk about them. You can tell a coherent story about what happened. You can feel some of the emotional content, and then you can put it away. And you can also understand what it means in your larger story arc. When you have an unintegrated memory, that's when we can start talking about triggers, because that's when you have these little fragments that come up that your brain, you know, tries to recontextualize, but then gets kind of cut off by your fear, your stress response. But so the, the goal of healing is integration, not not feeling. When you're asking your brain to stop feeling, you're asking it to do something that it's not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I like that. And uh, it does lead to another question as far as like when people that could be listening when they're when they hear the word integration mm-hmm. and they might think, okay, well, how do I integrate that memory into my way of being that's, you know, if it's not integrated, how do I integrate it? What, like, can you speak? on that a little bit as far as like what that might look like i'm sure that's part of that's the whole process of therapy or different things but like what anything specifically you'd say about what that kind of looks like for 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 someone to integrate a new or a a memory back into their functionality i guess or whatever word we want to use for sure yeah so i think from a high level um the the three things that you want to do you want to go in and, and reorganize that memory file And so Mm -hmm. that might look like reorganizing a narrative that may be PC, or maybe it has some fragments missing, or maybe the whole thing is just kind of blank. Um, So you want to reorganize that. You want to deal with some of the emotional content so that it doesn't spill out of the folder. So if I, for example, open the the file that contains the, the morning my father died, I want to be able to tell the story in a way that makes sense. I want to be able to feel some of the grief, but I also want to be able to like stop crying. Like if I tear up while we talk about it, that's very normal, right? But if I'm crying for three days, 
even though it's been so many years since he died, that's, that's an issue that maybe there's some unbearable emotion there that needs to be held. And I'm trying not to use the word integrated held and sort of processed with somebody else, somebody else's right. And then the last thing, and I think there's tons of hope here, even though I also acknowledge this is really hard is to kind of reestablish what these things mean in your larger story arc. We don't have any control often, unfortunately, over what happens to us. And Mm -hmm. we do though, have control over what it means in our larger story arc. And so I didn't have control over the fact that I lost my father when I was 24, but I can continue to re-decide and and kind of recontextualize what that means, rewrite those meaning tags on the folder, decide what I'm gonna do with it. And so I think there are, as you know, thousands of therapeutic modalities that kind of fit into those three categories and aim at doing some of that or all of that work together. And that could be internal family systems, that could be narrative therapy, that could be EMDR, all of these things that people are talking about a lot recently, and then other modalities that have existed alongside of those things for a long time. But I think the goal is in general, kind of attacking the memory file in those three spaces. Right. Okay. So that kind of shifts is something I wanted to touch on. And this kind of goes into the chapter. If, you, if people are familiar with the book or they get the book, The Malcolm's Fight Club, which like, you know, you reference um, your dad passing away at a young age. Um, and I can't remember if you use the word in the book, but I, I just, because I'd read the book, Shattered Assumptions, that's the way I internalized it. I think you might've used that term, but it's basically this idea that for me, a shattered assumption is like, you might think, okay, you know, I'm 24, my dad's going to live tell whatever you know he's going to walk me down the aisle he's going to whatever he's going to be there and then something like that a sudden loss hits you and that shatters that whole worldview mm-hmm. or map of the way that I saw my life right mm-hmm. and now I have to you know recalibrate or regovern or you know renegotiate or whatever the word is yeah. to you know that that narrative that I've had that now is broken and doesn't feel like, you know, it's just, it, yeah, it, it's gone. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we can kind of feel lost without that because like, okay, this was my map for how I wanted the world to be. And now it's not that way. So that's kind of, I think what you're saying, as far as like, you know, when you talk about that in the, in the book is, you know, that's part of that recalibration, right. Is that's the narrative side of it, I think, right. The worldview and stuff, if you want to talk a little bit about that or. Yeah. And I think, I think it's the, you're so you're working in that case with the particular memory file and that particular story but you're also working over and above that in what does this mean for all of the other files like Mm -hmm. because my file system was built on a a structure that has just shattered and so now what and I think that's one of the things that we miss so often when we talk about trauma in therapeutic spaces because so many modalities are built are built uh, based on this idea that, okay, you have this one singular memory, you just have to integrate it and then move on. But we forget that, that, that nothing that happens to us is, is in a vacuum, you know, right, right. It reverberates through the whole file cabinet in the brain and the whole structure of meaning. And so the language that I use, I think in that chapter, um, I got from this idea of moral injury, which is when your structures of meaning collapse and, and you sometimes then realize for the first time that they were even there and holding Mm -hmm. the universe up. And so, as you mentioned, you know, I did not expect to lose my father at 24. I did think he would walk me down the aisle. I thought he would live, you know, well into his eighties and he was 62. And so 
the, it, it sort of, I was forced to come to grips with this idea that I had this set of, of meanings, this set of meaning structures that I was using to help understand and navigate the world that then shattered and fell apart. Mm-hmm. And so the death of my father is very much about that singular event, but it's also about now I have to, as you said, renegotiate the whole map. I have to figure out, okay, what structure was there that shattered? What do I want to rebuild? How do I go about doing that? What does that mean for who I am and then how I exist in the world and in other relationships? And I think that's truly like a lifelong path and journey because we build these structures and then another piece falls down and something that we didn't even realize we believed in gets challenged, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the idea that bad things don't happen to good people, right? That's a very common right. one that we don't really realize is sort of running underneath everything that we do and think. And then something happens. Something that happens. Proves, yeah. And so yeah. we're forced to reckon with that. So it really becomes sort of like an existential crisis. And I think that's yeah. what we need to kind of take in more globally if we're going to understand and help people heal from trauma right it's not just and i think the, the mo- oh sorry go ahead oh no go go ahead i can i can wait <laughs> last thing i was just going to say it's not yeah, just no, about you- the event it's how that event stamped your world with meaning mm-hmm. yeah i i think one of the things and it was probably like the most powerful part and i i've said at, at the end of that chapter and i said this to several people and they're just like they just kind of like it it just catches them because i think of the, the the impact that it has and the truth that it has which is basically how to, to be vulnerable and feel safe at the same time right mm-hmm. and that it, to me it's like i mean those two things just have a hard you know in <laughs> vulnerable and feel safe right it's like yeah. and especially after your worldview or whatever that more, mm-hmm. you know, it gets shattered. It's like, well, how do I step on that ground again and yeah. feel like I can have the same level of safety or okayness or trust in, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, but that's definitely something that people have to navigate, which I don't, yeah, I don't know if you have anything you want to share about that, but that I, I just yeah. thought I really, that to me really encapsulated so much about what healing looks like too, or what we have to do in in that process of healing, right? Yeah. The only thing that I've come up with there is this idea that it's 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 not a reconciliation of the tension. It's learning to dance with the tension. Mm-hmm. Be- because yeah. this and this is something that I struggle with. I was talking to my own therapist just yesterday about that yeah. exact tension, about how to be, how to be vulnerable and not constantly be for me in, you know, a space of anticipatory grief about who I'm going to lose next, because I've Mm -hmm. had so much loss in my life. Um, How do I, how do I take those risks? How do I actually show up in that way? Because what I meet is an incredible amount of grief and pain that is invisible, that most people don't think about, you know, or I think lots of people do, but we don't certainly talk about it. And so how do you, my impulse, my, my, my younger self wants to just banish that feeling. I just want to be able to connect and be vulnerable and not have that fear like that. If I could, you know, wave a magic wand, that's what I would do. But I don't think that that's unfortunately something that we get at this point in, in time. <laughs> Maybe there will be some advancement in technology and we can do that. But um, I think in the place of that, then you learn to dance with that tension and, and understand that it is a dance that sometimes you will be leading and sometimes you'll be following. And sometimes the music will be a little bit more fast paced and frantic and you'll lose your footing. And other times you'll feel really great 
and like you're connecting with some, you know, energy. Um, I don't know if that, if that, yeah, if no, that I love image that. makes sense outside of my head. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. Cause I think that that really kind of helps people too, at least for me, the image of the dance, right. Because it's like that, you know, like said, even sometimes you'll be leading, sometimes it will be leading mm-hmm. and you just have to try to flow with it the best that you can. Mm-hmm. And knowing that that's probably all you can do, right. The best that you can. And it's never going to maybe feel a hundred percent. Like there might be moments of like, okay, I feel comfortable, more comfortable being yeah. vulnerable right now. Mm-hmm. And there'll be times when I feel less comfortable being vulnerable, vulnerable right now. And some of that might have to do with, I know we haven't really talked about triggers, but we just mentioned it. Some of that might have to do with things that might trigger me that are cl- that hit closer to home with maybe a specific trauma or whatever. Cause obviously when that happens, yeah. it's going to be a lot harder to feel mm. that sense of vulnerability or allow yourself to be vulnerable or feel like you can even be safe because I'm just being, you know, yeah. flooded with a trigger of sorts. Right. 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 And then I'm very much like not actually in this space. I mean, I'm in the past. Yeah. 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 But no, I really like that as far as that goes. I think that hopefully would give people like, again, a good idea for themselves is like, it's never, and that goes even to the idea of healing, like it's an end destination, yeah. right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll be healed when I can manage those two tensions in a better way. And it's like, it's always going to be a consistent yep. sort of navigation of mm-hmm. sorts to where, you know, those things are at play, right? Did you? Yeah, I, I think one of the things or, okay. that, that like, you know, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever tried to learn to dance or if you've ever done this, or yeah. I think really <laughs> anything that, dancing. That, we, that we do with our bodies requires such a huge amount of humility where we just mm-hmm. say like, yeah, I'm going to stumble. I'm going to go, I'm going to take the class. I'm going to miss some steps. I'm going to love it in some moments. I'm going to hate it. Um, but the, the key, the thing that I really need to keep going, the, the one tool that absolutely has to be in the toolbox is that I don't shame myself relentlessly when I trip, because then, then you're out, then, then the shame mm-hmm. takes over and you can't dance and there's no enjoyment and there's no, you know, and that's, I think again, like true in any physical activity that you're doing, you have to be a little humble. Otherwise there's yeah. no way forward. And then when you are humble, you can say, okay, so I tripped. Okay. So let's step back. Let's take a break. What does that mean? You know, how am I going to recover from that? How am I feeling instead of going to one of two places? One is why does this keep happening to me? The universe is doing something terrible and I'm, you know, uh, at fault or I'm, you know, at the mercy of the universe all the time, or two, it's all my fault. And I am, you know, irreparably broken and need to figure out how to not be in order to move forward. Because, you know, either of those poles is just not helpful. Well, and you bring that up. And I I mentioned to you before we started talking, just the book that I'd read, Shattered Assumptions. And it Mm kind of goes into that dynamic of like, you know, how we utilize self-blame as a way of even trying to maintain like a worldview. So even if my worldview is, you know, good things happen, good things don't happen to, or what is it? What do we say? Bad things happen. Don't bad things don't happen to good people. Right. Mm Um, so in order to maintain that worldview, I might say, well, it was my fault that that happened. So therefore I must be bad or I must be whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe I was thinking I was good, but really I must be bad. And so then it kind of, it it helps to maintain that worldview, but then also now we're in a stuck in a worse place because we're Mm -hmm. in this spiral of self-blame, which doesn't really lead to good things either. So yeah, yeah. no, and it often leads to repetition. We repeat mm-hmm. the things because we, when we make them our fault, which again, I think, as you said, it's like, you have two, two pills to choose from. And it's like, well, 
I at least know what this one's going to do. The shame pill I'm used to, that's something that we become familiar with so young. And so if I can internalize it and make it all my fault, that's a lot more comfortable in, in some ways, even though that may sound counterintuitive, than coming to grips with the fact that my parents were neglectful or that mm-hmm. people are maybe evil sometimes and do really violent, inexplicable things. It's sometimes an easier pill to swallow that it's my fault. But the thing that you then miss is all of the other lessons that you could learn about the world when you can understand that from a perspective that says that your parents were neglectful and that's not your fault, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because we, we so often, we, and we are, this is a place we are so maybe the most relentlessly shameful about is when we repeat relationship patterns that are destructive and we, our behavior becomes inexplicable to ourselves because we say, I know this is bad and I'm repeating it. What the hell is wrong with me? And it's, it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's that this is really complicated. Relationship dynamics are super complicated and there's stuff that hasn't been processed. And if you Mm -hmm. can do that and, you know, process that stuff without shame, you're a lot less likely to repeat and repeat and repeat. Right. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, Which this is a totally side note, but I just want to throw it out there because when, for whatever reason, when you're saying this, it was like, it reminded me of something when you were talking about like the, the trauma bond aspect of things. Um, And I really appreciated your, your slight, I don't know, whatever it was to (laughs) maybe pop psychology (laughs) and their version of trauma bonds. Um, I was like, ah, sweet. There's, I I like that. (laughs) But I felt like you're your assessment of trauma bonds and kind of the way you did you defined it and looked I, I anyway it made a lot of sense and i i appreciated the the definition and kind of the way you viewed it rather than maybe sometimes how it's portrayed so yeah there's anyway, like I said yeah, that was a the, the, i'm glad you said that there's a whole chapter on trauma bonds trauma bonds are super important to understand and the way that they are being depicted on social media right now is like kind of hilarious because it's like you and i both have been in mental health fields therefore we're trauma bonded like no that is not <laughs> not what a trauma bond is. It has a real definition. That definition has a history that's actually really fascinating. And a trauma bond is critical to understand so that you can figure out how to get out of it. Right. Yeah. 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 Do you want to just give, do you have the definition off, off what, what would you, what, how would you, def- yeah. how did you define it in the book? So um, I kind of trace the fascinating history of the trauma bond and how we, we came to understand it. it comes from the field of understanding domestic violence and why why domestic violence was happening in, in otherwise happy relationships. And there was a whole bunch of bad science that happened for about 20 years. And then these two um, researchers came, came around Donald Dutton and Susan Painter, and they redefined it as a, kind of an alchemical bond, a very strong bond that is the power to change both people in the dynamic where there's a power imbalance that's the first part. And the second part is that then one partner intermittently abuses, harasses, or threatens the other. Um, mm-hmm. And so it becomes this really complicated power dynamic where there is intermittent abuse, which I think is really important to understand because we do such a terrible job at talking about and understanding domestic violence. And I think a big piece of what we don't understand is that the abuse isn't 100% of the time. It is couched in incredible loving behavior and gestures and promises that this will never happen again and all of this other stuff. And these power dynamics that are acting on both people, 
And so, yeah, there it's, it's a complicated, really sticky thing in the book. I use the metaphor of rare earth magnets, which are the strongest kinds of magnets. And actually, if you hold them apart, um, they will sometimes collide with such force that they break apart. And if there's, you know, if you get your hand stuck, it'll break your bones. So it's a, it's a tricky, it's thing. an intense thing. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, what I, I, like I said, I appreciate it. It definitely has given a lot of context for me and to, to give that information to other people. But so if you want to learn more about the trauma bond dynamic, the book is, is a good place for it. So um, I guess a couple other quick things that I want to touch on. One is, I mean, in the book, you also mentioned the notion of like the trigger trap. Do you want to just talk a little bit about yeah. that? Like what that is for you, the trigger trap or yeah. what people need to be aware of when it comes to the trigger trap? Yeah, there's a couple of misconceptions that come up with this idea of being triggered. And I think that the misconceptions arise from so much conversation about triggers. We're using that word so often without any kind of understanding of what it was supposed to mean. And so a trigger was supposed to originally refer to a really unique neurobiological experience where you are in two times at once. And so let's say I'm talking to you and you say a phrase that uh, an abusive partner said to me at some point, and I'm really fighting to stay in this moment and talk to you, but also there's a, a huge part of my nervous system and brain that is in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I start to disconnect and lose track of what we were talking about. And I'm feeling anxious and all of these, I really start to get, you know, we use language of like flooding and being taken over and hijacked by your nervous system and your amygdala and stuff like that. Um, and a trigger the, the reason that they happen neurobiologically is because there's, there are fragments in your memory files that are unintegrated. And so your brain is actually trying to kind of turn on an indicator light that says, Hey, there's something here we need to contextualize and work on. Um, and so it throws that memory to the front of your mind when you're in the present, but your fear center recognizes it as dangerous. And so it sets off the full stress response uh -huh. in your body. And so that's what a trigger is or what, what, what it originally was, but we're using it now in a bunch of different ways that are incorrect. And one of them is that we are using the word trigger to kind of as a catch-all for any emotion that is like slightly inconvenient, um, or negative in any way. Right. So I heard, um, when I first, I used to live in LA for a little while. And when I first moved there, it was the fall and this girl came in and there was no pumpkin spice, like pump stuff or whatever. Yeah. And, um, she, she declared very loudly to the whole store that she had PTSD and she could never return to the Starbucks again because hmm. she was so disappointed. Wow. Well, <laughs> right. Shattered, shattered assumption. Shattered assumption. Gonna, right. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe there was like a sufficient backstory where like her, you know, this was the thing she did with her mother every fall and her mother had just died. And this was, I don't actually know, but I, I'm willing to bet. I think it's probably a reasonable bet that it was just a use of the term for, mm -hmm. you know, hyperbolic effect. <laughs> she right. wanted to be. She wanted, she wanted to, to announce the fact she's right. very, yes, very disappointed in the very lack of pumpkin spice. Yes. <laughs> right. And so, so when we overuse the word, then we twist its meaning. And so there's a couple of misconceptions that get sort of just kind of looped in here. And one is that we're always aware of our triggers because I think what we don't realize is that we can be triggered by anything. You can be triggered mm -hmm. by fluctuations in your blood pressure that you can't actually really consciously be aware of. You can be triggered by a color. You can be triggered and not have the cognitive knowing that you've been triggered. You just start feeling anxious and you don't know why. 
Um, and then the second thing, the second misconception is that triggers are like this sign post that tell you that you should avoid that thing for the rest of your life. Right. So like if, um, if I'm triggered by my high heart rate, then I should never exercise. If I'm triggered by, um, people who are, are, um, angry and fired up, then I can't be on social media. And what's actually happening is, as I explained before, your brain is, is kind of trying to turn on an indicator light that says like your indicator light does in your car, something needs work. And so integrating that trigger will stop that symptom. Um, and then again, I think this third misconception, which we talked about a little bit already is the idea that like, when I stop feeling, then I will be healed. Mm-hmm. We think, it, you know, I won't have the trigger anymore means I won't feel Feel, anything. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's more likely what's what you actually want to aim for is to have a kind of an appropriate amount of feeling. Right. And so when something scary happens, you're watching a scary movie, like you're supposed to feel scared. That's okay. When you take out a a file that has fear in it, you can feel a little bit afraid. It's just, does that fear become totally outsized? Does it take over the next three days? That's kind of the thing you want to look at. Right. Just the reduction aspect rather than exactly the, the actual intensity of it or whatever. And that, yeah, like I said, you can like feel it and maybe quickly shift into mm-hmm. something different, meaning like not like a disconnect or a disassociate, but like more of just like, okay, I felt that I kind of recognize that for what it is. And yep. now um, right. I'm good to keep moving forward or whatever. So right. Totally. Yeah. 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 Good. Okay. I like that. Um, so just as we're talking, I was thinking, okay, I think the book kind of like in the way outlined this dynamic, I didn't really put it together until now, but it's like, when you talk about those three components, the narrative, the emotional content, and then the label aspect, Mm -hmm. those are kind of like the chapters definitely have reflection of like those three parts, right? Where it's like you, there's kind of like the narrative aspect where, you know, maybe <laughs> you're like I didn't even duh. realize you're like uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm no thinking, I didn't oh, realize oh, okay and like in Malcolm's part you know kind of has like a little bit more of the narrative story mm-hmm. um maybe the girl with the trauma or the girl that lost the person and then anyway I don't know, maybe hers was most emotional content sure. I don't know. but the last one was the the label part right the label mm-hmm. the tag labels and kind of what you deal with and that's Lily's story which is very you know impactful or personal for you right yeah but I thought that was like to me it was again great chapter and just great context because I think even beyond trauma a lot of times people struggle and maybe they just don't know that the the maybe the label doesn't they don't recognize the label maybe comes from some type of trauma but mm-hmm. but the idea of labels or overcoming things like not good enough or whatever it is that's a big part of I think what people deal with in general um and so I, I thought that that chapter was you know, very impactful, very amazing. But I don't know if you want to just talk about that dynamic as far as the labels and and kind of like subverting, or is that the word? Yeah, Our subverting power. power. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The um, so someone I was I am doing a book club right now on the book. Where I'm gonna actually rerun it in September if people are interested. Um, but we were we were just looking at that chapter, the Lily chapter, and someone called it the M Night Shyamalan chapter. <laughs> oh, okay. Which made me laugh because they're sort of the secret reveal, which I won't give away. But um. Oh, okay. <laughs> But yeah, there's this idea in healing where we, and this again, this is like a dance where we, we sometimes over-identify with our pathologies and we say, okay, so I've been diagnosed with PTSD. And so this is what I am. And I've heard mm-hmm. so often in the last couple of months, clients say, well, my whole personality is a trauma response mm-hmm. and everything that I have built is a trauma response, which is in some sense true because 
your trauma response is an adaptation to your environment and your experience. And at the same time, it's not everything that you are. So one of the things that trauma tricks us into thinking is that the trauma story is the only story Mm -hmm. and the, the pathology or the label is the only thing about us. And it's, it becomes this negativity bias where we see ourselves. So if you label yourself as anxious or someone who has PTSD, then all you see is the anxious behavior. All you see are the PTSD symptoms. And there's an exercise in the book, um, which I can give away just a little bit because it's one of my favorite ones where you put those labels down right? Like you're anxious, Mm -hmm. you have PTSD, whatever else, uh, you know, the listener will know their labels because they will come to mind right away. And then you put those down on paper. You think about how they make you feel seeing them listed like that. And then you write down a hundred other things that you are right next to those labels. And it can be tiny. Like you're someone who drinks LaCroix. You're someone who uh, has three pairs of vans. You're someone who is a mountain biker, like whatever they are. Um, and the result is that you fill your picture out and you see that, yes, these labels may be true, but they are so far from all that you are that it's almost absurd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hope, I mean, I know there'll be some people listening that were like, oh, that's why he gave me that exercise. But I definitely give you credit because I've given it out <laughs> oh, several times. I don't um, even care. Just give it No, <laughs> I do. I do give you credit because I'm like, okay, this comes from this book. I'm broken. It's great. I love the, I, be, because like you said, it's like, it's really hard for people to come outside of their, that identity. And those yeah. labels are so, you know, even if they just come up with a list of four or five, it's like those four or five things are so impactful to them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of just what they gravitate to, as opposed to all the other stuff that they are or, or can be, or, or totally. not even can be, because it's typically, it's what they are. Yeah. They just don't see it, right? Yeah. They don't see the, those aspects of things. And the other thing I thought was interesting about that, that's even helped me, you know, is when you talk about just the engagement with that label mm-hmm. and, and how, um, like, even when you're saying, well, okay, I'm going to prove that I'm good enough but you're mm-hmm. still engaged with the label. Right. Right. And I think yes. for me, it was like, it's kind of like a little bit of light bulb, even though I probably understood that, but just hearing it, reading it, it was mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, you can't even really, you can't in that case, you don't even want to dance with that. Right. You, right. you, you want to just be okay. Kick that over here. Mm-hmm. And I'm just being me. I want my own identity and I don't want my identity to be based on whether or not I am good enough or not good enough, or if I'm proving it mm-hmm. wrong or whatever, I would just want it to be, Mm-hmm. what it is. So I thought that was really, I, I, did that come up in research or is that just something you like came up with as far as things or how did you, or just what you saw, I guess, with that? Yeah, no, it was just what I was seeing with my clients and I was seeing, and and also with myself, um, we're, we're living in kind of a strange time because people mm-hmm. are so much more likely to talk about their own mental health struggles publicly, which yeah. is amazing. I did, that's a great, wonderful thing but we're kind of doing this strange thing where it becomes almost like a kind of social currency. The more struggle you have, Mm -hmm. more legitimate you are. And I think that pushes us to over-identify with these stories and then get really stuck. Mm -hmm. Because if the story you're telling yourself about yourself is that the only important thing about you or the only story about you is that you have trauma or anxiety, then you get to a, a, a healing ceiling pretty quickly. And you can't really break out of that because to do so would then be to let go of your identity, which is really Mm. terrifying, right? That's like ego death. Yeah. And so, um, so I was seeing that over and over with clients and thinking like, okay, so if we over-engage with this, we run into problems. And if we rebel against them and make our whole personality about rebelling against these things, 
it, it almost just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because we just yeah. end up over-identifying with them from the place of rebellion, which is also not helpful. Right. And so it was like, how can we reconcile these things, but not make them our whole being? And I, so I just came, I think I came up with this, honestly, like off the top of my head in a group, cause I was frustrated and I was like, yes, those <laughs> things people. are, right. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. You're anxious. Right. Okay. I hear you write that down now, write a hundred other things you are, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and we did it live in a group and it was just like, oh, wow. That's, you know, yeah, holy, holy crap. Like, yeah. Okay. Sure. I'm anxious, but like, look at all the other things on the page that I am like, right. that is such a small thing in, in, in comparison. So, right. Right. Yeah. And if I'm like I said, and if I'm just trying not to be that anxious person right. or whatever, it's still like I'm it still, still owns you. Yeah, yeah. it's still mm-hmm. right, right, right. So yeah, no, I thought that was great. And just like the idea of like subverting that power and kind of you know, mm-hmm. I, I use the term even just taking your power back and being able yep. to like, you know, be in charge of the bus and you know, drive or I guess drive the bus in, mm-hmm. in the way that you want it and not the way the label is trying to tell you to go or what you are, or what you aren't. So yeah. 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 A, yeah can, I, very... can I tell the Muhammad Ali story? Really? Quick? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he, Muhammad Ali was set to fight George Foreman and George Foreman mm-hmm. was known to be just a lot stronger than Ali. And this was the rumble in the jungle. I think it was like 1970 mm-hmm. or something, 1968. And um, people were actually afraid that Ali was going to die. Like they weren't just afraid that he was going to lose the fight, but that Foreman was so much stronger that he was, he wasn't actually going to physically make it. And so Ali came up with this method that, that is now called rope-a-dope where he leaned back against the ropes and he just let Foreman wail on him. He protected his face and his, you know, important parts. And then anytime he felt like he could get a shot in a really good one, he would get it in, but otherwise he would just let Foreman wail on him. And then at the end, when Foreman got exhausted, as you do, when you're hitting with all of this energy and strength, um, he hit him with a, a combo and knocked him out and he actually won the fight. And so he went from this position of like underdog might die <laughs> to actually winning the fight, which seemed physically impossible because in a sense it was physically impossible. Mm-hmm. But the, the way that he won, the way that he took the reins back, as you say, or subverted the power was by accepting the facts. He was yeah. not going to become as strong as Foreman. It was impossible. Right. And he could have kind of shrunk into shame and said, I'm not as strong and I'm getting older and I'm not a, you know, I'm a has-been. That would have been a really easy route. And then he would have lost for sure in two seconds, lost the fight. But instead he accepted what was and took the power back by uh, figuring out what else was there. Yeah. He's not as strong yeah. as Foreman, but he's really clever. And so he came up with a clever way around it. And I just, mm. I'm obsessed with that story. Because yeah, I love it. The other thing I point out to people too is I, and you might as well just, yeah, but I always, I point out to people that he also didn't try to prove himself yes. strong, right? He right. didn't, he didn't, he didn't try to prove himself against the belief, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, people are saying I'm not as powerful. I'm going to show them I'm going to mm-hmm. be as powerful. Like he didn't go that route either. Cause then same way you end up in the same result where if you yep. go that path, you're going to lose anyway or whatever, cause you won't be as powerful and then you'll, the, the label will fit or whatever. Totally. So like yeah. you said, the, I think there's, yeah. Anyway, that, that, that's, that part spoke to me as well too. Like he didn't, he didn't get into that boxing match with the, with the belief where it's like, I'm going to prove myself to be this way. And, you know, and yeah, so I, I think that's a great analogy for that. And it kind of covers all those bases and he just was okay and created his own identity for himself. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the greatest things 
um, you know, boxing matches in history. And then Rocky stole the idea and did it against Mr. T. And, and oh, I didn't even know that. <laughs> it's pretty much what he did. Same thing in the second oh, fight. He, he just took a beating from him for a couple rounds and then he got tired and then he beat him. So, yeah, Boom. I love it. <laughs> For anybody that's yeah more on the rocky side of things, it's like there's it's the same same theory. You got to <laughs> repeat, worked. yeah, yes, exactly. Gotta, right, right. <laughs> All right. Well, I really again just appreciate you coming on. I love the book. Or anybody that's you know looking for a good read, it's a great read. And the thing Thank that's, you. I mean, even just in talking to you today, I mean, hopefully people realize the book is similarly written. It's a very I don't find it complicated and find it like too, you know, like what's the word academic or anything like that is very yeah. readable for anybody. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was a great, great way of doing it. Cause I think sometimes that can be a challenge for, for some people to not, to have a book speak to everybody versus like, you know, getting the technical part out there, but then, yeah. you know, then it's like a textbook and no one yeah, can yeah. get through it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. No, th this was great. So oh, I think people you. really enjoy it. So, um, but yeah, again, thanks for coming on and it was great to meet you and, best Thank of luck so with much. the book and Thank everything you so are you are you doing is i mean besides the book is there any other things that people can maybe find you on or anything yeah oh there's yeah. really exciting things coming so i'm uh i'm on um instagram at mc.phd and also tiktok mcphd and i have a website alchemycoaching.life um and i'm going to be starting more uh, classes in the fall okay um, that are based on these things and and other things that i'm working on and writing on um, that I would love to have people come and join if they're interested. Yeah. 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 Great. All right. Okay. Well, I'll put that in the show notes and awesome. Thank and, you. uh, we'll make sure we get that out there. So, cool. all right. Thank, Thank you, you again. so much. All right. Oh, yeah. All right. I just want to thank my guest MC once again for coming in and sharing, uh, her knowledge and insight about trauma, uh, from her book, unbroken, once again, so please be sure to check that out. It's an amazing book. I love it. I use it a lot with my clients already. One of the things I really appreciate about her and about the book is, is that she doesn't really shy away from things. A lot of times in these books, um, people will talk about a subject, but they don't really give you any tools or things that you can do. This book has it all. It's got several tools that you can utilize on your own um, and that you can draw from to help you in your own experience with your own trauma. Uh, which I think is great. I use a lot of them in, with my clients already. Um, and so it's just a, it's a great book and a great starting point if you're looking to further your understanding of your own trauma and working through different things, please check it out. Um, and like I said, I, I could go on for, you know, even longer about just how great the things were that we were able to talk about today. I uh, hope you enjoyed it and hope you keep listening to the show. Again, it's the 100th episode. I'm really excited about uh, being able to share this one with you. Uh, it was a great one to uh, give to you as far as the 100th episode. And uh, just hope you keep listening and tuning in. And this is The Vegas Therapist signing off until next time.